Thank you, Bill. Good morning to everybody. Great to be together again today. And if you're visiting with us, we're so thankful you're here. We're always thankful for our regular members, but if you're visiting, you're special to us. We hope you'll come back and be with us every time you have the opportunity. If you have any questions about anything you see us do or hear us say, please let us know so we can answer those questions. We're simply trying to be the church we all read about in the Bible. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. The Coopers, Sister Cooper gives a thank you card uh, for the congregation, for all the prayers and all the thoughts uh, and the beautiful cards, the phone calls, and we're thankful that they're doing better and they're able to be with us here this morning. And as I said in class, no more falls, no more falls. So I want them to be well and healthy and strong. I want us to focus on something this morning that I think is very real and a lot of people may not really think about as far as their reaction is concerned. I've entitled the lesson, Three Reactions to Preaching the Gospel. Now when we think about the gospel, and this really surprised me a number of years ago when I first started having this kind of brought out to me and, and, and you know, becoming uh, something that was confronting me as far as what people's understanding of the gospel is. And, and especially, you know, probably in the denominational world, I'm not sure a whole lot of people, if you ask them, what is the gospel, that they could actually answer you in, in a scriptural way. What do the scriptures teach the gospel to be? Well, the gospel is, is, is really straightforward. It's easy to understand. And all of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and, and God, we ought to be able to understand just the basics of what the gospel really is, what the message of the gospel is. Now, when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see the gospel laid out for us by the Apostle Paul, the gospel message, in a very succinct fashion. Paul wrote, beginning with verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. Now he's writing this to Christians and he says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. He, when he was working with that particular congregation and especially those who were not yet Christians, he simply taught the gospel. And he says, that's what you believed and that's wherein you stand by which also you are saved. There is no way to salvation except through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself being the mediator between us and God, John chapter 14 and verse 6, and this message he brought from God from the throne room in heaven as to God's pathway for us to come to him for, for, for forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I declared to you the gospel. I preached the gospel to you, which also you received and in which you stand. You're still living in that gospel and by that gospel message, by which also you are saved if you hold fast. So it's not a matter of simply saying, oh, I heard that, I believe that, and that's it. No, he says you have to hold fast that, to that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So it's not just coming to a mental and, 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 and uh, intellectual understanding and agreement, 
It's a lifestyle that we take up and that we live for the rest of our lives. He goes on and says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And so he now begins to explain the basic message of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies that the Savior would come into the world sent by God and he would die for our sins. He would be that perfect one time for all time sacrifice and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Again, according to the scriptures that was all prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remains the present, but some have fallen asleep. I think we're to understand have died. By the time Paul wrote this, he says most of them are still alive. They were eyewitnesses of his having risen from the dead. Well, so the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Christ died for our sins according to the gospel. We will go back to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. And that 53rd chapter of Isaiah is really <clears throat> detailed in, in, in messianic prophecy, talking about the coming Savior even though it was written many hundreds of years before Jesus came. But in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, the prophet wrote, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was buried for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. Jesus died on that cross to pay the price for our sins, so that we could have the opportunity through him to be forgiven, to be redeemed, to be reconciled to God, brought back in a right relationship with him, and to be saved and have eternal life. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, <coughs> excuse me, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. For, in verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For everyone. And then Hebrews 10 and verse 10. Uh, also, he talks about how he was the sacrifice for our sins. So he died on that cross to pay for the, our sins. And as we, a moment ago, we partook of the Lord's Supper that he instituted the, the night of his betrayal. And so Jesus, when he passed out the cup to the apostles, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. We remember his death on that cross, the shedding of his blood as the crowns of thorn, as the crown of thorns must have pierced his skin and, and, and trickles of blood would, would trickle down across his face and, his, and probably drip down in his body. When the nails were driven through his hands and his feet, when the spear was thrust into his side and blood and water came forth, he did that. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That we remember 
his sacrifice in thankfulness as we partake of that supper. Now, having died physically, he was buried. He was buried in a tomb, again, according to the scriptures. We go back to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9 this time. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He was buried after he died on that cross. No question about it. We read of the account of Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, taking his body and preparing it by Jewish custom for burial after he died on that cross. John chapter 19, beginning with verse 40. Then they took the body of Jesus and they bound it it in strips of linen with the spices. They would interweave spices in strips of linen that they would wrap around the body to keep, the the idea there was to keep the the, uh, odors of the decaying flesh down as as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in that place there where he was crucified there was a there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews preparation day for the tomb was nearby. <clears throat> so that tomb was dug into the into the earth and another account tells us that as they laid Jesus' body in that tomb, after they had finished preparing his body for burial in that tomb, that there was a stone that was rolled across the entrance to that tomb that would have been extremely heavy, and it was large, and the tomb was actually sealed, actually sealed to make sure that no grave robbers would come along and steal the body or anything that was put, put in that tomb with the body. So he was buried in that tomb. In baptism, as we are buried, immersed in the waters of baptism, we go through a spiritual likeness of his physical burial in that tomb. Colossians 2 and verse 12 says, we were buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the working of God and raised, who raised him from the dead. So he died on that cross, he was buried in that tomb, and then the third part of the basic gospel message is he arose from that grave, alive. He was risen. When we think about, again, the Old Testament scriptures, they prophesied this. I thank you, I appreciate that. They prophesied that this would happen. Psalm 16 and verse 10, for you will, leave no, uh, you will, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Now, Sheol was a a Hebrew expression for the grave, for whatever would happen after a person died and was buried. And so here was the prophecy, speaking of the coming Savior, hundreds of years down the road, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, you're not going to allow me as the prophecy was, the coming Savior, when he died and was buried in that tomb, you'll not allow me to stay in there long enough for my flesh to decay, my body to decay. No, no, you're going to bring me forth again. Matthew chapter 28, verses 5 and 6. The angel answered and said to the women, now this is when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary come, it's after Jesus's Death on the cross, his burial in that tomb, they come on the third day, they're basically going to check on him. They're check on the gravesite, I guess. 
they're not going to be able to get into the tomb because, again, this massive stone covers the entrance and it's been sealed so that nobody could open it. So, but they come and they check. And so there's an angel there at the entrance to the tomb and the tomb's open when they arrive. And the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. So the angel tells the two women, come see where he was. You can see it's an empty tomb. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And coming as, as we are baptized into Christ, as we read a moment ago, the likeness from a spiritual perspective is that we are uniting with Christ in his physical death, physically death, physically dead, and his burial in that physical grave, but then the resurrection, he came forth alive. And so Romans chapter six, verses four and five, teach us about the spiritual reenactment or the parallelism as we are baptized into Christ. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. We die to that old life of sinfulness and that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Jesus literally died physically he was literally buried in that tomb. He was dead physically, but he arose alive. When we are baptized into Christ, as Paul lays it out here, we die to that old life of sin and we are buried, completely covered up, immersed in the waters of baptism. And as we are buried in those waters, the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for us cleanses us of the guilt of our sins. And as we are brought back up out of those waters, we have been made new. We have been made alive spiritually. We were dead in our sins because verse 23 of, of Romans chapter 6 says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as we come up out of those waters of baptism, we have been made alive. And Paul says that you, you're ready to walk in newness of life from a spiritual perspective. For if we have been united together with Christ in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And so we see this wonderful imagery that is played out for us from a spiritual perspective, paralleling the physical death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as we are baptized into Christ. We die to that old life of sin we are buried with our Lord in the waters of baptism. The blood that he shed on the cross for us cleanses us of the guilt of our sins. We come up out of that, resurrected out of that watery grave, made alive spiritually. Because we've been forgiven, we've been born again. As Jesus told Nicodemus, has to happen for us to see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Now, this very gospel message... This very gospel message, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ embodies the power of God to salvation for us. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God 
to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. This very gospel message, still almost 2,000 years later, after Jesus died on that cross and was resurrected from that tomb and ascended back to heaven, it still embodies fully the power to change a person's life forever. That's the gospel of Christ. That's the gospel of Christ. And that's the exact same message that we preach and teach today. That's what we want to try to help people understand as to how they can come to God through Christ, their Savior, and be forgiven of their sins and be saved. Preaching this message of salvation in Christ is God's methodology to save those who believe. Now, let me say that again. Preaching this gospel message of salvation in Christ is God's designed methodology for teaching people, for helping them come to learn and understand what God has done for them so that those who believe can be forgiven of their sins and be saved and look forward to eternal life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 21. Paul wrote, for, once, uh, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, and I think we're to understand the world through its own worldly wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God's methodology. What we're doing today, preaching the gospel, that's God's designed methodology to help people come to learn and to obey that gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who believe, but to those who are called, those who have become Christians, those who have understood and, and, and obeyed the gospel of Christ, both Jews and Greeks, this message is the power of God. It is talking about Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I don't think for one second or one millisecond that Paul is suggesting there that there is any foolishness in God or any weakness in God. But, but he's simply using illustrative language to get across the, to the, the point that even if you could consider God to have one degree of foolishness, that's wiser than the wisdom, the ultimate wisdom of mankind. If you think about any weakness in God, if there is any at all, if you could suggest there is, that weakness would be far stronger than the mightiest strength of mankind. But he's simply using illustrative language. He's not suggesting that there's any foolishness in God or any weakness in God. Now, what I want us to look at this morning is what Paul brings out in that particular text, he talks about three different responses 
to God's design to lead mankind to forgiveness and salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ by preaching the gospel. Three reactions to preaching the gospel are brought out in that text, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. First, I don't believe it. I just simply don't believe it. That's the first reaction he brings out. And he said, where does it say that there? To the Jews, a stumbling block. The idea of a savior coming and dying on that cross, that's not the kind of savior they were looking for. They wanted some kind of charismatic king to come and establish, reestablish his throne in, in Jerusalem, David's throne. Wanted him to kick out the Roman army that had come to occupy their land and restore the land to physical glory, geographic glory and freedom. They wanted a, a dynamic leader. Jesus was born into a carpenter's family. We don't even know much about his growing up years until he comes to adulthood. And then he preaches that gospel message throughout the land and almost everybody rejects it. And then he dies on the cross. He's crucified, an execution kind of death. And so first, the first reaction, they say, I don't believe it. But now what about people today who would not be of a Jewish background, but they still, I don't believe it. And let me tell you, there are billions of people out there who do not believe in Jesus. But even some who might say, well, yeah, I, 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 I understand. Maybe there is a God. Maybe, maybe there was, was a, you know, Jesus on this earth. I'm not sure he was divine. He might have just been a really smart guy. Charismatic leader. Well, that's not the kind of leader he was. But I, I don't believe it. I don't believe the gospel. I don't believe you can, you can be you know, given eternal life through that particular message. I just don't believe that. It's fanciful. Well, in Psalm 19 and verse 1, the psalmist writes, and this is a lesson for everybody from an intellectual perspective. The psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. When we think about the synchronous design of the universe and of this world and of life therein, and then to suggest that all of that could have just somehow happened by accident, by chance, by random, that chaos somehow could have produced order, which is scientifically absurd. No, the psalmist says, the heavens declare a designer behind the design, and that designer is God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Psalm 10 and verse four, the wicked in his proud continence does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. And we have a whole lot of people out there who would fit that particular description in their mindset right now. God, I don't believe in God. 
or if I have any possibility, if there's any opening in my mindset for the existence of God, you know, I, I just don't know. It hasn't been proven to me. I'd like to see proof. Well, there are people out there, but, but even people who might say, I believe in God, they don't believe in Jesus. And so the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts, none of his thoughts. And so there are many who will not entertain the thought of God's existence at all. And it's realistically impossible if, that if Jesus were a fraud, if he were a fraud claiming to be the savior prophesied about in Old Testament prophecies, for him to have fulfilled all of those prophecies in minute detail, that would be realistically impossible. Realistically impossible. So many sought signs of divinity when Jesus was upon this earth. And he performed miracles. The scripture texts tell us that he performed wonders and signs and miracles repeatedly. In John chapter 5 and verse 36, Jesus spoke and he said, and, and he continued to have detractors all the time. Didn't believe in him. Some hated him. Some wanted to kill him. He says, I have a greater witness than John's. If you go back to John's gospel account in chapter one, John, I believe two different times, confessed Jesus as being the savior, the one that God had sent him, John, to prepare the way for. But Jesus says, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And then on Pentecost, when Peter's preaching, he's telling that massive crowd of Jewish men gathered there. And we're talking about many thousands, about 3,000 would be baptized that day, but undoubtedly there were a great many more who did not respond in obedience. And he says, men of Israel, verse 22 of Acts chapter two, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. His detractors kept saying, show us a sign, show us a sign. He said, aren't you paying attention? Were you sleeping when I just did what I just did? When I fed the 5,000, when I fed the 4,000? When I raised the dead, when I healed the lepers and many others who were sick and lame, when I cast out demons, were you not paying attention? Where was your head? Peter said, he did all these things in your presence and you still rejected him. Still rejected him. So one response brought out in that text, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, people just don't believe, just don't believe. The people who were supposed to be prepared for Jesus to come, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they had all the Old Testament prophecies. The vast, vast, vast majority of them simply did not believe in Jesus or that gospel message. The second response that's brought out in that text is just a bunch of foolishness. Now, what did Paul say? The preaching of the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews, to the Greeks or to the Gentiles, foolishness, foolishness. And you say, well, what, what, what do you mean by it's foolishness to the Gentiles? 
the idea of somebody dying physically, actually dying and then being resurrected from that death state back to life, foolishness. That doesn't happen. That was their response, <clears throat> many of them at least. Well, Acts chapter 26, beginning with verse 20, that was exactly the response to Festus, the Roman governor, as Paul was presenting his defense before him and King Agrippa and Agrippa's wife. And Paul was simply preaching the gospel by way of that defense. And so we pick up with verse 20. Paul says, therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. He's appealing back to the Old Testament prophecies of the Savior, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead it would and, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, because the gospel is for all. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus, the Roman governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has made you, is driving you mad. In other words, Festus was saying, Paul, you're crazy. When did he say that? After Paul said Jesus arose from the dead. To the Gentiles, foolishness. Foolishness, yet he was seen risen, not by one or two people. It wasn't just a person here or there said, I heard about somebody who said they saw somebody who looked like Jesus off in a shadow someplace. No, Paul says, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 4. He says that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. You can go ask them, in other words, but some have fallen asleep. And then he goes on and he says, and after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. The last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So Paul says, let me tell you. He was seen by hundreds and hundreds of individuals. And he begins to list at least a number of them <clears throat> by category. But some said, no, that's foolishness. Rising from the dead, no, nah, that's foolishness. Divinity come from heaven to earth and become man, no, nah, that's foolishness. And then the third response that's brought out in that text. And that is the gospel message is the power and wisdom of God. So there were two negative responses, and then there was one positive response that Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. John the Apostle wrote this, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and which and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Speaking of Jesus, John is saying we apostles were there. We saw him. Remember that Jesus said that Thomas could touch his hands, could put his hand in his side where the, where the 
uh, spear had thr been thrust into him. John says we saw him alive. We handled him. We touched him. He was real. He was not just an image or an imagination. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. The power of God validated the truthfulness of the gospel message. It is the power of God. Now, Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul addresses the Roman Christians as he begins this letter. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before to those uh, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, physically born, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. How did God demonstrate repeatedly while Jesus was upon this earth he is my son. He is the prophesied savior come to earth through signs and wonders and miracles. As Jesus would proclaim that gospel message. And then in the most magnificent way, after God allowed Jesus to die on that cross and be buried in that tomb, God raised him from the dead. And so Paul says, God's power is behind the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As we believe and obey the gospel, we tap into God's saving power. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, who don't believe it, who will not obey it, who will not respond to it. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, the power of God. And the power of God works in us to our salvation through that gospel message of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 8, Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, the gospel, in other words, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began and has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Difficult for us to fully imagine that God before he ever created mankind upon this earth, being God, all-knowing, all-seeing, even in foresight, already knew man was going to mess up and become sinful. And God already, because he created man in love and created man to be with him for eternity in heaven, with a soul, God already had the plan. He already had the plan to send his son into this world as a savior. Already had that plan for the gospel message 
of salvation through Jesus Christ. And Paul says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't give up. Don't be afraid to continue to preach. The power of God is within this message. The power to our salvation. So one response, I just don't believe it. Another response, another negative response, hey, that's foolishness. Someone dead, resurrecting? No, that's silly. The third response, I believe with all my heart the power of God is in that message. Jesus was not a fraud. He proved himself over and over again to be the Savior. But there is a fourth response that's not brought out in that particular text. It's a fourth response that we just see played out in the lives of so many people today. And that is, they ignore the gospel. They put it out of their mind in order to supposedly not have to deal with it. But reality is reality. Truth is truth. And ignoring the truth does not change it from being the truth with all of its consequences if it is not recognized and obeyed. And so 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, our Savior, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There will be no atheists on the final day of judgment. There will be no agnostics. There will be no skeptics. Everyone will see the Savior before them. And everyone will answer as to how they've lived their lives before him. They will have to answer if they have not obeyed the gospel that Jesus brought to this earth, the gospel message of salvation through him, they will have to answer for that failure on their part. Now, how will you respond to the gospel right now? Will you be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins so that what he did for you on that cross, through that burial, through that resurrection, can save you? Do you need the prayers of the church for whatever reason? Maybe you have strayed away. Maybe you have become complacent. Maybe you've become careless in your spiritual life. We'd love to pray with you and for you. If you need to come, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?